Well, there was a little country church where they had a testimony time uh, once a month, and people could get up and share what was going on in their life. And there was a man who would stand up each time, each week that this took place, and he'd say, um, I may not be making much progress, but I'm established. <laughs> and this happened week after week, month after month. And finally, one Sunday, the pastor went to this man after the service, and he said, Brother Jones, He said, God doesn't want you being stuck where you are. He said, I want to help you to begin to grow. And the man waved his hand. He said, Reverend, don't need no help. Not making much progress, but I'm established. Well, it just happened that one Sunday when one of these testimony times took place that it had been a rainy morning and it continued to rain all through the service and even afterwards. And as Brother Jones got out and he got in his wagon and he was headed down a back dirt road, he hit a a soft spot and he sunk his wagon. And as he tried and tried to get it out, this wagon just went deeper and deeper, eventually sinking all the way to the bed. A little while later, the pastor was leaving the church, and he was driving down this back road in in his old truck, and he comes upon Brother Jones. And looking at the situation, he says, well, Brother Jones, I see you're not making much progress, but you sure are established. Well, last week as we began a series in the book of Philippians, we saw that Paul was writing to the believers, the Christians there in Philippi. And as he opened the letter, he told them not only about God's great love for them, but also his love for these believers. He thanked them for their partnership and all that they were doing. And as we continue looking at the letter today, what we're going to find is that Paul prays for these believers. And what he prays for them is that they wouldn't be satisfied with staying where they are, but that they would continue to grow in their love for God and others. So I invite you to look with me at Philippians chapter 1, where I want to begin by picking up in verse 7 to catch the context. He says, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still the more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. As Paul's giving thanks here, what he says to the Philippians as he thinks of their support of him, he says, I have you in my heart. Well, actually, what he says here is, I have you in my, my intestines. Now, that doesn't sound, yeah, I know, it'd be a great Valentine's card to get, wouldn't it, with a set of intestines on it. But that's actually what he's saying, because the word here uh, literally means your bowels. Now, you may be thinking, oh, quit whispering sweet nothings, Paul. But in that day, that was the way that you communicated deep love for somebody. We, in our day, say, I love you with all my heart. But what Paul was saying is, I I have you in my gut. I have this deep and abiding relationship for you. And the reason for that is because of the deep love he had for the Lord and they did. And as these two things came together, it showed. Paul talks about the tangible ways they showed love to him. He says, you stood with me in my imprisonment as he mentions in verse 7. Later, he'll talk about the financial gifts that they send. And even more than just the money, he talks about the person, the friend Epaphroditus, that was sent to support him. 
In Philippians 2.25, Paul says of him, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. And as Paul is thinking about their love, he, he can articulate specific ways. He can, he can list one after another after another of ways that they showed this, this love for him. As you think about Paul's list here, I wonder if we look at our own lives, how many of us can think of ways that somebody else could list our love to them. As you think about your life, are there tangible ways that somebody could say of you, I see God's love in and through you by the way you did this for me, by the way your life reflects this about Christ? What is it that we could say of ourselves, as Paul says here, There was a Peanuts cartoon. Some of you um, may remember this one. It showed Schroeder. Schroeder's that intellectual pianist, you remember. He would always be head down, just banging away on the keys. And Lucy uh, had a love for Schroeder. And uh, she would always be leaning on his piano, kind of staring at him. And and one day as he's there, nose down in the keys, just playing the piano, Lucy says to Schroeder, she says, Schroeder, do you know what love is? Now, the next frame shows Schroeder up from his piano. He's standing at rigid attention. And you can almost hear him with a very somber voice saying, Love, a noun to be fond of, a strong affection for or the attachment or devotion to a person. And then the next frame, he's sitting back at his piano, nose down, playing the piano again with Lucy still staring at him. In the last one, she stares right at you and she says, On paper, he's great. Friends, how many of us are great on paper? How many of us are good at defining what love is? If somebody says to you, what is love? Do we immediately flip over to 1 Corinthians 13? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not take account of wrong suffering. And we, we give the biblical definition of love. And on paper, we're great. But as people look at us, do they see it? Do they see that love not only in our life, but our labors? Or is it more just something that we articulate only with our lips? We can be great on paper and able to say the right words. But when it comes to real warmth or action, do we lack that? In 1 John 3.18, we're told, Little children, that is those of us who are believers, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. You see, real love is shown in our life and our labors, not just with our lips. If you look closely there at 1 Corinthians 13, you'll see that it doesn't simply just define love. Have you ever noticed that all of those are verbs? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. As you look at it, they are all actions. So many of us feel love is just an emotion. And so when that that warm, fuzzy feeling suddenly is gone, we say, I don't love that person anymore, or I'm not in love with this or that anymore. And what God says is we are to do actions that demonstrate love. And as we do so, do you know what happens? Our emotions can be reignited. That fire that has started to go out in a marriage or a relationship can be reborn, rekindled as we stir those dying embers and as we put more fuel on the fire. When it comes to God's love for us, it was full of action. 
Romans 5a tells us God demonstrates. He demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. An action, an action that is spoken of in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave. He didn't say, I love you. He demonstrated as he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. There in Romans 5.8 and John 3.16, the word for love is agape. Agape is a, a, a word that says it is an all-giving, all-sacrificing love. It is demonstrated in saying, if it is only a one-way street, I'm still going to walk it. I'm going to give. I'm going to sacrifice, even if I don't get what I want in return. And as Paul is writing here in Philippians 1.9, he uses that same agape word. He says, and this I pray that your love may abound all the more and still more in real knowledge and all discernment. When he prays for their, our love and their love to abound, this word means literally to overflow, to gush out in copious amounts. You can picture this, this love as a, as a raging river. Now, as, as you think of that, as this love is unleashed, notice that he says it would be guided by real knowledge, which speaks of God's truth, and he says, and discernment. The, the picture you have here is of a river that is running. So as you picture this abundant water, this copious amount of water that is flowing, you have two riverbanks that are containing and directing the river. We've all seen what happens when there's too much of a good thing, right? A flash flood that occurs is there's too much water coming down and it jumps the riverbanks and it starts to suddenly overflow around and become something that is now no longer helpful. And this is what Paul is telling us here. What he's saying is if you remove these boundaries, the blessing can quickly go from being a blessing to something that's dangerous. Now, maybe you're sitting here saying, oh, come on, Roger, can there really be too much love? I mean, love is a great thing. How can there ever be too much love? Some of you remember what happened at Sandy Hook Elementary in Newtown. And as the people there around our country have been trying to show love to those in, in Newtown, uh, they've been sending teddy bears. They've been sending school supplies. They've been sending other things. And as you read the reports that are on the Internet, here's one from December 27th, back as the, this deluge of love was coming in. Officials in Newtown, this is a quote from CNN, officials in Newtown, Connecticut, are asking people to stop sending gifts. January 6th, a follow-up. Despite the town's pleas to stop sending gifts, trucks arrive daily. It's not just the, the teddy bears and the supplies. It's the cards that are being mailed in. The system is overwhelmed. And what they're saying is, stop. We can't handle it anymore. We filled warehouses with stuff. We, we're having to divert resources. People are no longer able to do their jobs in the town because they're having to deal with this, this deluge, this overflow of love. It happens around the world as well. Here are two pictures. The one with the trucks and the pile of clothing is from Haiti after the, the devastation that took place there. And well-meaning people were sending clothes and other resources there. And it came to the point that they said, stop. This is a quote that says, excessive and unwanted donations have been called the second disaster. It's, it's become a place where the piled up clothes are mildewing, they're, they're harboring rats and, and other vermin. 
This is a picture in Alabama after the tornadoes where people sent supplies, food, that is piled up and spoiling. Can there ever be too much love? Yes. If it is unbridled and undirected, it can become more hurtful than helpful. Think about your own life. Think about a situation where maybe as a parent, uh, you meant well, but what you thought is, I'm going to spoil my son or daughter. And love means never saying no. Have you ever heard that? And what happens if you have a child that has never heard no, that has never been given those boundaries that help them experience love, but within proper boundaries? As a result, they end up with no sense of values, boundaries, or respect for others. Another way that misguided love can become dangerous is when we don't pair it with truth. There are so many times we say to people, you know, I, I, I love that person too much to hurt them. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hide the truth from them. Friends, imagine that you had some type of cancer and you went to your doctor who was a great friend of yours. And he or she found this disease in your body and they said, you know, this is going to make the person feel really bad. It's going to be bad news, and and I know it's going to hurt them and cause anxiety maybe, and the follow-up of surgery will will cause pain as we have to cut into the body and remove the tumor, and the chemo can be devastating to the body. And so I'm, I'm not going to tell them because I love them too much. Is that love? You're saying that's malpractice. And yet how many of us as believers are guilty of malpractice at times? Because we have a friend or a family member, and what we say to them is, you know, I value the relationship too much, and if I share this hard truth, it may drive them away. The person may get mad at me and say, well, you're judgmental, or I don't want anything to do with your God if that's how he is. And and so what we do is we hide the truth, and we call it love, and we cover it up. And as we do so, what we're doing is putting a Band-Aid on a cancerous tumor, And we're hiding it, and we're calling it love. But what real love says is, I'd rather share the truth. I'd rather risk you being mad at me so that you don't spend eternity separated from a God who really does love you. And so I'm willing to lean into the relationship. I'm willing to share the hard truth, even with the hurt and the pain that may come through it. But I'm committed to you, and I'm going to walk with you through the process. Now, as we share this truth, it's not a turn or burn type of message. That's not love. If you tell somebody, shake or bake, fly or fry, you know, you're not sharing love. What God says is you communicate the real truth of what he did when he loved the person so much that he came and died for this individual. You'll recall that here Paul is praying we as believers would grow in this love. He's praying we would grow in wisdom and discernment, knowing how to share it. He says in verse 10, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Now this word translated in verse 10 as approve, or as some translations say discern, is is a word that means literally to sift or test something, to recognize its worth and thus put a stamp of approval on it. It's it's a word that communicates here in verse 10 as he says, you approve this. When we approach somebody in this way, what we're doing is it's like the old sifting screens. Have you ever seen archaeologists or if you've ever gone to one of these uh, tourist-type places where you can buy the bag of jewels, right? Your kids love this. 
And you pour it in, and, and they put this thing in the water, and they sift, and the sand and the dirt flows away, and they pull out the treasures. And this is the idea. When it says that we love somebody to the point that we uh, use love in a way that approves them, what it says is we separate the sin from the individual. What we say to them is you are loved by God, you are valuable, and I want to hold on to you, and God wants you with him. But what he doesn't want is all this other stuff that needs to be washed away, that needs to be removed. When people would pan for gold, they would do the same thing, and they would pluck out the nuggets. And then this metal, this precious metal would be taken, and it would be tested to find whether or not it was true gold. And if so, what was the level of purity? And this is what that word was used to describe. It was the removing of things that were valuable, and then it was the testing of money or metals, the process it went through to see if they were genuine and what standard of purity they met. And as Paul says that he calls on us to approve the value, what he's saying is uh, we need to see what's really worthwhile. And he says we need to hold on to these things that are excellent. We, we pluck out the things that are excellent, and we hold on to these. Now, this idea of doing this is not limited just to the removal of sin from our life, but it also speaks of the, the opportunities or the things that we choose to hold on to in our world. You know, there's an abundance of great opportunity in the world, isn't there? One of the things we face here at Wayside, I literally, between three to five times a week, get an email, a letter, uh, a call or a visit from somebody that says, here's an opportunity in the community. Here is something that we want your church to be a part of. Many times it's people who are a part of Wayside that say, I have a heart, I have a passion for this particular area or ministry. And they will come and they will present an idea and they'll say, we as a church need to be involved in this. And what I'm constantly coaching our staff to learn is that whenever we say yes to something, what it means is we've said no to something else. Do you realize that? Because every time you say yes to something, what you do is you commit a spot on the calendar, you commit a room for a meeting, you commit the resources of of manpower, the volunteers of our church, uh, our own efforts and energy that go into that. So whenever we say yes to something, we have really said no to a future opportunity. And so we have to use wisdom and discernment to decide what is good, what is better, and what is best. And to learn to say no to some really good things because there are better and best things that we as a church need to be involved in. And we uh, as a church are not the only ones who need to do this. Each one of you as individuals need to learn this process in your own life. Because every time you say yes to something, you've said no to something else. For me as an individual, whenever I say yes to a speaking opportunity, what I've then done is committed that calendar spot, the energy to prepare a message for that. And so any future opportunity that comes along, I've said no to because I've already committed that. And some of you may be sitting here saying, well, Roger, that's actually a pretty easy process. You see, what you do is you kind of hedge your bets, right? You say yes to something, but then if a better thing comes along later, you just clear that first thing and you trade up. That's not the way to do it. That doesn't honor God, and that doesn't honor uh, your word, your commitment. What what the Bible tells us in Matthew 5.37 and in James 5.12 is, let your yes be yes, and your no, no. What that means is when you've said yes to something, you follow through with your commitment. 
I'll tell you one of the most maddening things that I see in Christian circles are these men in ministry, these artists who are singers or other things, who will say yes to some opportunity. I'm going to go speak at this event. I'm going to go speak at this church. But then a bigger or better opportunity comes along. This church is 400, and all of a sudden there's a 1,000-member church or a 5,000-member church who wants me to now come. Or I said yes to this retreat, but now I get to go speak at a conference and, and get on the, the platform, and you know they'll pay a nice honorarium, and it'll be a nice this or that. And so what people do is they say, well, I'm sorry, uh, the Lord's led me to a new opportunity. No, he didn't. You said yes to this. You fulfill that commitment. And friends, whether it's in the church world or in your world, you let your yes be yes. So what that means is we have to learn to pray as Paul prays here, that we would have wisdom and discernment. A good prayer that all of us can pray is, Lord, help me to understand the good from the bad. Remove that sin, those things that are not excellent from my life. That one we can say, well, that's fairly easy. Where the hard process comes is when we say, God, would you help me to know the better from the good or the best from the better? And as we grow in wisdom and discernment, do you remember last week we talked about the process where when we're first saved, there's that step of justification where we step over the line of faith? And then as we grow, that's called sanctification. And we're moving more and more closer to the mind of Christ. And as we start to understand more of what God wants us to do, we're able to make better decisions because we start to think like him. And so this is what Paul is praying here, that we would be believers who would understand the best from the better and the good from the, from the bad. Now in verse 10, he, he prays that we would be sincere. This is a word that means more than simply following through on what you say. It's more than just letting your yes be yes and honoring your word. The, the word sincere here means, um, it communicates the idea of being genuine in who you are. The, the Greek word that is used here is alikronos. Now, this is a, a word that, that means to be sincere or pure. It, it's a word that literally has the meaning of to be tested by sunlight. If you want to paraphrase the word, it simply means without wax. Now, how did it get that meaning? If you think back to the first century, this is a word that as the reader saw it, it would have communicated volumes. They would have immediately said, I understand this. When Paul says to be sincere, it's a compound word that means sun and to be judged. And, and this word meant uh, to be tested by sunlight. Because what would happen is when you, when you made pottery in that day, as the clay was drying, occasionally your, your pot would crack. Now, if you were a merchant trying to sell this, you've already put in the material and the time to prepare it. And now you have a cracked pot. And if you put it out in your store, people who are coming along are going to pick this thing up and go, this is damaged goods, Uh, I'll give you pennies on the dollar, or I don't even want it because I need to pour some type of liquid in it and it's going to leak out through the crack. And so what these unscrupulous merchants would do is they would take a a wax and, and they would fill in the crack 
And, you know, it had to be more of a hairline. They couldn't do it with a huge gaping hole. But if it was a hairline crack, they would fill it in with this wax and kind of rub uh, the color around so that it, it blended in. And you came in as a, a customer, and you'd pick up the pot, and you'd look at it, and you'd say, this looks good, and you buy it. And you take it home. And when you filled it up with something, over time, the wax would begin to deteriorate, or if it was a, a heated event, uh, the wax would melt. And then what happened? The stuff in it would leak out. And you not only had the loss of your product, but you also had the loss of your money because you said, this, this thing is no good anymore. And so what people would do is they would go into these dark shops. You know, it's not like today where, where stores are well lit and things. And they would take the pot and they would step outside and they would hold it up to the sun. And as you turned this pot in the sunlight, guess what happened? The, the cracks would show because you were testing it with the bright light of the sun. As we think of our own lives, how many of them could, could uh, withstand the bright spotlight of scrutiny? You know, we see these politicians who, who go through the, the process, and there, there are some that just say, you know, I'm not even going to run for office because I don't want to subject my life or my family to this process. And what they're really saying is, you know, I think I've got some skeletons in the closet that are going to come out, and I'm just not going to do that. As you think about your own life, if it were to be put under the bright light of a spotlight and people were to examine you closely, would you be sincere? Would you be without wax? You see, what we do as Christians is we're real good at concealing things, aren't we? We, we come on Sunday morning and, and we, we put this uh, cheap concealer over our life and we smile. Somebody says, how are you doing? And we're thinking, do you really want to know? How much time do you have? You know, things are not good right now, but instead what we do is we flash the smile and we say, it's great. Better than I deserve, right? What Paul says is, I want us to be a group of individuals and a church gathered who are sincere. Those who are willing to say to one another, you know, I know you have cracks in your life. I know there are flaws, and it's okay. Because I'm a cracked pot myself. So let's all get together. And let's be real with one another. Let's share the hurts. You know, all of our lives are chipped and cracked. And so many of us worry about the externals. We, we try to fill those holes with the cheap counterfeit stuff of the world. We put the little Christian veneer and finish on that says everything's great. And what God says is, you're all cracked pots. And I know that. And I came and I gave a solution to your sin, to your problems, to your hurt. And it doesn't come from putting stuff on the outside. It comes from the inside out. Because as I change your heart, as I begin to move in your life, as I begin to do things, the scripture says that we who are believers have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. God says, you don't need to put that junk of the world in the holes. From the inside out, I can change you. From the inside out, I can begin to fix you. There may be outside chips and, and scars and things, but it's okay because what counts most is the internal. If God is at work in our life, rather than putting a Band-Aid on a tumor or wax on cracked pottery that conceals something and makes a pretty presentation but ultimately will fail, what God says is be changed from the inside out. Satan wants us to believe that with our mistakes, God throws us out, says you're, you're good for the, the pile of broken pottery. But as we saw in Romans 5, 8, God said, I demonstrated my love for you in this. 
while you were still a sinner, while you were far from me, while you were in your rebellion, I loved you enough to come and enter into your world and to take your place, to die for you, to provide what you need to fill that hole in your life. God tells us in those times where we've, we've got those cracks in our life, he says there's a solution for you. Even once you come to faith in Christ, do you realize you're going to develop new cracks, new sin, new failures in your life? And what he tells us in 1 John 1, 9 is if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Holy Spirit will continue to do his work within us if we allow God to be at work, rather than hiding our sin, he says, deal with it. Don't pretend you're perfect people. You know, not only does that damage continue to hold us in our damaged state, but it hurts us with the world. Because we become, a church becomes known as a place, you know, don't go to that church because it's full of hypocrites. Have you ever heard that? You know, it's a place where you would go on the street and say, don't go buy pots from Roger's house of pottery because he's got a lot of cracked pots in there where he's hiding things. And what God says instead is we should have truth in advertising. I have people all the time tell me when they find out I'm a pastor, (laughs) you know, I, I gave up church a long time ago. I don't go there because it's full of hypocrites. And what I want to say is, well, you're welcome to join us. We've got room for more, but I don't. I always let the sanctification, wisdom, discernment, I just, I listen. And I go, yeah, you know, you're right. It is full of sinners. I look out every week and I see gossips and I see those who steal and lie and, you know, I don't give the whole list. And, and, but what I say is, you know, we're not perfect people. We're just forgiven. And what I tell them is, you know, the Bible tells us we're all sinners. And I'll open it to 1 John chapter 1. And, and I don't start at verse 9. What I start with is, is verse 8, because it says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. You see that? I say, you know, you are right. You must read your Bible because you know that we're all still sinners. And then what I say to them is, but God's given us a solution. And I take them to verse 9. If we confess our sins. God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then I say to that person, I say, have you ever done that? Have you ever confessed your sin? Have you ever taken that step of faith where you've given your life to God and said, God, would you come and fill me? Would you change me from the inside out? That's a much better way to have the conversation than to go head on in the other direction. And it brings that person to the point of saying, I have to make a decision. And as you think about that in your own life, what have you done with that? Have you come to that point where you've said, you know, God, I'm a cracked pot. I've got stuff going on in my life, and I need you. And if you've never crossed the line of faith, if you've never gone from where you were to where you need to be, I invite you to do so. Last week as this service ended, there was a lady who came to the front who said, I need that. And a new life started right here, right after this service last week. And she came to faith and she stepped over the line. And you can do that in your life as well. Now, once we step over that line, again, remember, God wants us growing. He doesn't want us to stay where we are to say, I'm established. God says, no, you need to grow. And as you think about your life and this this visual of our life being a pot, this is what 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 9 tells us. 
But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Our body is seen as a pot by God. So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. You see that? It's not about us doing it. It's about God doing things in our life. He says there's going to be trouble in this life too. He says we are afflicted in every way but not crushed. We are perplexed but not despairing. We are persecuted but not forsaken. We are struck down but not destroyed. Does that describe life? And what God says to us is, I want you to realize that the treasure is not the pot. As much as we are valuable to God, what God says is, the treasure is not the external, it's the internal. The real treasure is what is in us, Christ Jesus. And that is what we are to be sharing with the world. We have flaws, and what we do is we get out of the way and we say, let, let what is real in our life come out. You know, when there's heat or pressure on in our life, when that wax, the external things we've been covering up, melts away, it doesn't matter that so much that there's a crack in our life. What matters most is what leaks out. What do people see when that moment comes in our life? Do they see Christ in us that is leaking out? Or do they see anger and frustration or, or other things spilling out? Now, as you think about what's in us spilling out, uh, it matters what we're putting in us. You see, what the scriptures tell us is, as Paul tells us, uh, the things in us, it's going to overflow and show in us. And if we're allowing ourselves to be filled with Christ, with his word, with prayer, with fellowship with other believers who are putting the right things into our life, that is what is going to start to fill up and that's what's going to overflow. But if we're filling our mind and our life with the things of the world, then that's what's going to spill out in those moments. When Paul tells us to be sincere, notice he says in verse 10, we are also to be blameless. Now, last time we talked about how we're not perfect until we get to that step of glorification. Remember that? When we step through the gate of heaven. So what Paul's not saying is be perfect here. We're in that sanctification walk. What he says is we are to be blameless. It doesn't mean that we're perfect people going back to that fake veneer. Instead, this, this word speaks of being careful in how we live our life. The same word that is translated as blameless is found in 1 Corinthians 10.32. There it says, do not cause anyone to stumble. Do not cause anyone to stumble. A way to illustrate this is to think of a, a father who was with his young daughter. They had just planted a garden. And as they made the rows and they put the little plants in and the father began to water, the, the soil was, you know, muddy and there were all these fragile plants around. And, and this, this child of his, his daughter, was with him in the garden. And as they got out of the garden, the father very carefully picked his places where to step as he worked his way through the garden as he was getting out of the rows of plants. And as he got to the edge of the garden, he stopped and he looked back to see what his daughter was doing. And he noticed that she was very carefully stepping in his footprints. And, and as he looked at her, she, she looked up and she smiled at her father and she said, Daddy, if I step where you stepped, I won't get any mud on my feet. And that is the picture that God gives to us. As we go through this life as believers, we are to carefully choose our steps, so to speak. Not being fake or phony but saying, I'm going to walk like God wants me to walk. And as we do so, friends, whether you realize it or not, other people who know you are a believer, which means a follower of Christ, they're following you, aren't they? They're watching you. 
And if we are careful to step where we need to step so we don't get the mud and mire, the muck and mire of this world in our life, those who follow us will also be able to avoid some of those pitfalls. And that's what Paul is telling us here. We're all going to sin. We're all going to have times where we fall. But what we need to realize is, are we filling our life more with the, the things of Christ so that what flows out of the cracks in our life is not the mud of the world, but the blood of Christ? so that it overflows into the world. As others, the scriptures speaks of Christ and his word as being that living water. And as that flows out of our life, there's a parched world all around us, people who are desperate and thirsty for the truth. And you have to ask yourself, is that what your life is reflecting? That's why Paul tells the Philippians and us today to continue growing in our love for God and each other. He tells them in verse 11 to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You see, the, the goal here is to let our lives be vessels of God's glory. Now, maybe you're here today and you're saying, Roger, this is hard for me to do. Because I've got so many cracks and holes in my life, everything that's flowing in is flowing right out. Right? How do you fill a broken pot? Well, D.L. Moody said it this way. The only way to keep a broken vessel full is to keep it under a running faucet. To keep it under a running faucet. What God says to us is, are you being filled daily? Are are you spending time in my word? The living water. The words of life, is that what's flowing into you? Are you around positive people who are sharing the things of God rather than the, the junk of the world? Are you spending more time watching the reality shows on TV or are you spending that time in positive ways? What is it that is filling your life? Because that is what will overflow. Now, God says to us as well, don't leave all the open holes. Let's begin to work on fixing, removing those sins, changing those things in your life that are creating the leakage. But if we keep our broken vessels under a running faucet, it will fill us with the right things. And this is what Paul prays here. As you look at your life today, I want you to ask yourself, are you making progress or are you happy that you're established? Because Paul prays that we would make progress. Whether we're just starting out or pretty far along, God doesn't want us to be satisfied with where we are, saying it's good enough that I've gotten this far and I'm going to establish myself here. Instead, we're to continue making progress. I'll close with this illustration about the master painter, Michelangelo. Michelangelo was walking through his studio one day. He had a a group of students. And as he was going through and he was looking at the, the, the paintings that these students made, he would stop and he would talk to the student and correct some things and maybe take out the brush and make some changes, show them things. Well, he had one student who was known as a star. This, this was a very accomplished painter already. And as Michelangelo came to his work, all the other students were kind of crowded around to see, and it was a beautiful masterpiece that had been painted. And Michelangelo stopped, and he looked at it for a while. And then he he reached for a brush, and he dipped it in some paint. And much to the shock and surprise of the students, he painted one word across the canvas, amplius. The word means larger. You see, as Michelangelo looked at it, he said it was a beautiful work. There was great skill in the painting, but what he said is, this work is too small. It's cramped on the canvas. You need a bigger canvas. 
So I want you to make your work larger. Friends, that's what God is saying to us today. As a church at Wayside, we are involved in many great things and seeing God do many great things in and through this church. But what he says to us as a gathered group is amplius, larger. It needs to be, it's a beautiful masterpiece, but it's, it, it has room to grow. And what he says to each of us in our life, even those who have been believers for decades, who feel we're far along and walking with God and doing things, what he says to us is amplius, larger. Extend the work. Don't be satisfied with being established where you are. Continue to make progress until that moment when I call you home. Will you join me, please, as we go to the Lord in prayer? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great love for us. God the Father, we thank you for your unending love, even when we were far from you, that you loved us enough to give your son Jesus. Jesus, we thank you that you loved us enough to give your life, to die for me and the others who are here, to make us a part of the family. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to continue to grow and walk with you. Holy Spirit who lives within us, we pray you would do your refining work. Would you not only deal with the the flaws in our life and the sin that needs to be removed, but would you help us to hold on to you and to allow you to work in and through us. So God, we pray that as we leave here today, that you would help us to examine our lives under a spotlight. Would you help us to sift our lives and see the things that need to go? Would you remove the bad? Would you help us to choose the good? And then, God, would you give us wisdom and discernment to learn to choose the better from the good and the best that you want us to be involved in? So we commit our lives anew to you. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. There are prayer leaders at the front. If you have a need in your life, they would love to pray with you. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.